Hey, Denver, it's Bree. So my producer, Paul, has done a lot of work outside of this podcast on really incredible stories documenting Colorado's history and story. And he's got this particular story that connects with today, December 8th, which is actually Margaret Cole Day. And Paul's going to tell us a little bit about it, but we've got a podcast episode to share with you about Margaret Cole and who she is. Paul, can you just give us a little bit of a taste? Who is Margaret Cole and what is this about? It would be my honor, Bree. This project meant a great deal to me last year when I got so, so deep into it. This was like six months of my life. And yeah, Margaret Cole. So who is Margaret Cole? Margaret Cole is a writer. Um, She's an older woman who lives in Boulder. She's mostly known for writing mystery novels that take place on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. And yes, she is a white lady. So it's kind of interesting, this person digging into like tribal governance law and like the relationships between the white communities of Wyoming and the indigenous communities. You know, that's where the Northern Arapaho tribe is located. And that tribe once lived predominantly in Colorado. Um, And this has really been an interest for her her whole life. As I learned after I, after I dug into her background, I read a lot of her work and, and, and mostly what, What you all are about to hear is an audio documentary that revolves around one of her books in particular, her first book. It's this historical biography of Chief Left Hand, an Arapaho chief who lived in this this part of Colorado, uh, Boulder, Denver, Front Range area um, around mid-19th century. So right around the time that Colorado was becoming the community that would become a state. And I think what really strikes me is you kind of brought it up, but uh, Margaret is a white woman. And what I loved about this episode is that you go further and dig deeper and you talk to some folks with tribal affiliations and they really fill in this story of um, Chief Left Hand in a way that I kind of was kind of unexpected. So um, I'm really excited for listeners to hear it. One more thing, actually. Yes. The music is important. You wouldn't hear this otherwise until the credits at the end, but the music you hear in this documentary, it is performed by the gentleman you hear around halfway through, him and his brothers. So this is like a unique and specially recorded presentation of traditional Arapaho music. Oh, that's so awesome. That's something you don't hear often. So... Yeah. It's a nice touch to hear creative work from the people that are telling the story. Well, happy Margaret Cole Day, Bree. Thanks, Paul. Odds are, if you know anything about indigenous histories of Colorado, you know about the curse of the Boulder Valley. According to the internet, Arapaho Chief Left Hand uttered it when he first encountered white settlers making their homes near present-day Boulder. He said, People seeing the beauty of this valley will want to stay, and their staying will be the undoing of the beauty. It's a lovely quote, it's a lovely idea, but he didn't say it. I first got curious about Chief Left Hand and his legendary curse a few months ago. Around the time, I was hearing a lot about land acknowledgements. 
A few people I work with were putting them in their email signatures. Taika Waititi, the guy who directed Jojo Rabbit, he did one at the Oscars. Here, here's one I actually just found online. Uh, it's from the Memorial University in Canada. We respectfully acknowledge the territory in, in which, which we gather as the ancestral homelands of the Biatuk in, in the, the island, island of Newfoundland. Newfoundland. As the ancestral homelands of the Mi'kmaq and Biatuk. It seemed like a good idea, but I was conflicted. Are land acknowledgments just empty gestures? Or worse, virtue signaling? And just as I was having that cynical thought, I realized I really had no idea what I'd be acknowledging anyways. So how was I supposed to say? And that's what led me to Margaret Cole. My name is Margaret Cole. I'm the author of Chief Left Hand, a biography of one of the major uh, leaders of the Plains Indians in the mid-1800s. Today, Margaret is best known as the author of the Wind River Mysteries. It's a series of novels following Father John O'Malley and Arapaho lawyer Vicki Holden as they follow clues and right wrongs across the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. Years before all that, though, Margaret grew up on Denver's north side, in one of those Colorado families that's been around for generations. As a child, we, you know, we'd, we'd make trips all over the state of Colorado, so I became very familiar with the state. But everywhere we went, there was a, a, a sense that um, I had a connection there because, you know, great-grandfather so-and-so so had mined over here and the other, you know, great-uncle so-and-so had ranched out here on the plains. Everywhere we went, there was a connection. When Margaret grew up, she got married, had a few kids, and found work as a freelance journalist. And it was great because I could work, um, you know, during the day while they were in school and at three o'clock they'd hit the door and, you know, and I'd close up my typewriter in those days. <laughs> she told me that she wrote feature stories, mostly, for publications like the Christian Science Monitor and the New York Times, mostly about Colorado and the West. I had a pretty good career going doing that. And then, as I say, I got interested in Chief Left Hand and everything changed. <laughs> so this is why we're starting with Margaret. Because when I sat down with her to learn about the indigenous history of Colorado, I started with what I already knew, which was the curse of the Boulder Valley, the name Left Hand, basically nothing else. And around 40 years ago, that's where Margaret was starting too, uh, just after she moved to Boulder. And Left Hand is very... You know, it's a familiar name here in Boulder. We have Left Hand Creek. The Arapaho word for left hand is Niwot. And we have the town of Niwot right outside of Boulder, which is named for him. So it, it, he had a presence here. At this point, for Margaret, left hand was just a curiosity, a passing interest. The first thing I learned about him, which was just, just really caught my imagination, was that he was fluent in English. In the mid-1800s, white settlers were just starting to trickle across the Great Plains. There wasn't really much need or opportunity for any Native American out here on the plains to learn English. And I kept reading the same thing over and over, and there, there just wasn't a lot known about him. So very quickly, I was into primary sources. 
and looking at the records, the official government records, manuscripts, letters, just, you know, one thing would lead to another. And I was sitting at Norland Library, in the, in the library, I was reading through old treaties. And I remember just sitting there thinking, this is a book. And now for some stuff that I learned in Margaret's book. The man we know as Left Hand was born into the Southern Arapaho tribe at some point in the early to mid 1800s. Margaret's primary sources don't say much about what his life was like as a young man, but she learned from anthropologists what a typical Arapaho boy would be doing at that time. You know, a four or five, six year old boy would learn how to hunt rabbits. They were going to have to be hunters someday, so they had to start learning how to do that. You know, and as they progress, they also learned to be how to ride horses and how to take care of horses. And they were excellent horsemen. Excellent. Margaret also learned that Left Hand had a brother, Neva, and an older sister. Uh, her name was Mayham. I think that means snake woman, if I recall. <laughs> um, and she married a man named John Poissal. He was a trader. The Arapahoes at the time were friendly to traders like Poissal. And he actually lived with Mayhom in Left Hand's band. It was Poissal that taught Left Hand how to speak English. So he grew up fluent in English. Not only was he comfortable with the language, but he was comfortable around white people. Because he'd grown up with this white man in his family, this, this other. Left Hand's language skills helped distinguish him within his tribe. And as he grew up, he gained more influence and respect. But by the time he achieved a position of real authority in the 1850s, thousands and thousands of white people were flooding across the plains in search of gold and glory. And so one of the, one of the passages in, in your book that I found most like really compelling was this his, his left hand's trip east. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, there's a... There was a white man, his name was Marshall Cook, and he wrote about meeting Left Hand, who was coming back from a trip to Iowa, to Nebraska and Iowa. And he says that Left Hand had gone there so that Left Hand could see what this farming was all about. On the evening of the sixth day of October, 1858, a party from Rulo, Nebraska joined our train and camped with us. Noticeable among the party from Rulo was an Indian chief by the name of Left Hand, who spoke good English. He was returning to his tribe from an extended tour accompanied by his family through the states of Iowa and Nebraska. Left Hand saw that the game was fast vanishing before the devastating hands of the multitudes that would soon be rushing to and through his hunting grounds. He plainly foresaw that it would be a mere question of time until some other method beyond the chase will have to be soon adopted to procure the necessary food and clothing for his family and tribe. Left Hand said that he was well pleased with what he had seen and learned on his instructive trip, but he would not recommend the white man method of gaining subsistence. He thought it too much work for an Indian. He wanted the Great Father to start his tribe in the cattle business as it was more like their native occupation. 
And that's what he said. Which, I mean, and that must have been such like a, a weighty realization for him to know that the buffalo are going away. They're being hunted out of existence. And yeah. it doesn't seem like farming is going to be a possibility. So, so what, what are they going to do? else is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had proceeded by a short distance when a band of buffalo crossed the road a quarter mile in advance of the train. Great excitement prevailed among those of the party that had not witnessed the sight of a buffalo running at large in a wild state, and even Left Hand caught the incentive and handed the reins of his team to Mrs. Left Hand and jumped out of the wagon so lightly as a boy in his teens. Placing three fingers of his right hand to his mouth blew a shrill whistle which brought War Eagle, the extra pony, to his side. Then, mounting it without bridle or saddle, with a single barrel shotgun in his hand, when the pony darted away on a quick gallop, apparently eager for the chase. And as they approached the fleeing buffalo, the pony increased his speed until he appeared almost to fly. A short run at the speed he was going soon brought its rider alongside of a fine, fat cow. When Left Hand fired, the pony dashed away to avoid being gored by the wounded brute. Circling around, the faithful charger brought its rider again alongside of the maddened animal. The Indian in the interim had reloaded his gun, being now near to the wounded buffalo. The Indian fired the second time, which brought down the huge animal, the monarch of the plains. I should tell you something at this point. I relate very strongly to Margaret Cole. Like her, I had seen Left Hand's name around the front range and wondered who he was. And like her, the more I learned about him, the more I liked him, and the more I felt like I understood him as a person. There he was, camping under the cottonwoods as I biked into work along the Cherry Creek Trail. And there he was absorbing insult after insult from white authorities who didn't respect him as an equal. And there he was reassuring the young warriors in his band who were just itching to drop the pretense of peace and fight. And then, at a certain point, just like Margaret must have come to around 40 years ago, I realized where this story was heading. At dawn on the morning of November 29th, I was still in bed when I heard shouts and the noise of people running about the camp. What you're hearing is an excerpt of a first-hand account of the Sand Creek Massacre from a man named George Bent, as read by my friend J.D. George Bent happened to be camping with the Cheyennes and Left Hand's Band of Southern Arapahoes along Big Sandy Creek the morning of November 29th, 1864 when Colonel John Chivington whipped a regiment of fresh Coloradan recruits into a frenzy and ordered them to attack. From down the creek, a large body of troops was advancing at a rapid trot, some to the east of the camp and others on the opposite side of the creek to the west. I looked towards the chief's lodge and saw that Black Kettle had a large American flag tied to the end of a long lodge pole and was standing in front of his lodge, with the flag fluttering in the gray light of the winter dawn. 
I heard him call to the people not to be afraid, that the soldiers would not hurt them. Then, the troops opened fire. The Sand Creek Massacre is one of the most tragic events in Colorado's history. It's also one of the best documented. In addition to firsthand testimonies from George Bent and others, there was a military investigation and two formal congressional investigations into what happened that day. Government officials from back east came and tracked down documents and interviewed all the people involved to figure out who was responsible, which was Chivington and Territorial Governor John Evans, and exactly what happened, which was the unjustifiable killing of hundreds of Cheyennes and Arapahoes, mostly women and children. But as Margaret was reading through all those documents, she realized she had a big problem. In all those reports and testimonies, Left Hand's fate was unclear. Half of the scholars claimed he was killed at Sand Creek. But then there, were a, there was another half, it was like equally divided, that said, oh no, no, he survived Sand Creek. A few years after the massacre, a young man named Left Hand rose up to lead the Southern Arapahoes. But it was unclear to Margaret if he was the same left hand or some other man. And the thing is, I had done all this research. I was writing the book. I couldn't finish the book because I didn't know how it ended. I didn't know how this mystery was going to be solved. Margaret spent five years researching and writing her book. And over that time, she told me she grew attached to left hand. She wanted him to have survived. She wanted a happy ending. There was a professor at the University of Colorado who was well-known um, scholar of the Plains Indians. So I got in touch with him. I figured he would know. He would know what happened to Left Hand and well, which side am I going to come down on here and what is the evidence, you know. I can't just pick a side without having the evidence to support it. So I called him up and had a long talk with him and he said, oh, yes, he said, um, left hand survived Sand Creek. And then he went on. He is the man, you know, he became the man, the chief in Oklahoma later. I remember feeling so happy. I thought, oh, this is great, you know. And I said, well, can you tell me, you know, what, what is the evidence for that? And he said, well, he said, you can quote me. for sure that when a southern Rappos go, and I've heard it from the northern Rappos too, that when we come to Boulder, or we come to that area, that Denver, around Cherry Creek and stuff, we have a feeling that we're coming home. We have a feeling that, you know, that's just the calm that we feel good about where we're at there. Because this was our home, you know. After Sand Creek, the Cheyennes and Arapahoes retaliated, sparking years of open war on the plains. And in the Medicine Lodge Treaty of 1867, the U.S. government directed the Cheyenne and Southern Arapahoes to some land in Oklahoma that they called a reservation. 
That's why I wasn't able to speak with Fred Mosquita in person. Fred is the Arapaho coordinator in the language and culture program of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. I, I, I lived in, in a small town in northwest Oklahoma, but I was uh, raised, you know, kind of the old way, you know, where the language was spoken in the house, you know, the home. And so it was kind of um, uh, kind of easy for me to fit into this this job, you know, or this way, because I was, I was doing it anyway, you know. I wanted to talk to Fred because as I was reading Margaret's book, I realized something. I realized that what I was reading was a rigorously researched, thoroughly sourced, and defensible book of Western history. Margaret wrote what she could verify with evidence and nothing more. One perfect example is the Curse of the Boulder Valley that we talked about earlier. Remember when Margaret said this? It's a lovely quote. It's a lovely idea. But he didn't say it. And so I, I spent a lot of time trying to run that quote down and determine where it actually came from. And the furthest back I could trace that quote was to the 1930s. Here's what Fred said when I asked him what his sources were. Again, you know... Uh... I'm not sure who all found that, but it, it had probably again some some elder had to know that he said that, and had to come from somewhere. So I'm not really certain where you would find somebody that could really tell you. You know, it, it would have to have been a way elder a long, long time ago, because. Our stories are passed down orally. You know, they weren't written. So somebody had to hear the story that was probably in his band or in his his camp when 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 he would talk about that. I suppose that's part of the part of the problem that the white historians had when they mm-hmm. were having difficulty um, figuring out if he died at Sand Creek or not. Right. But the problem was that when I was growing up, even that late from that time, the old ones would cry. And then we would say, what's wrong? And they would say they were remembering them. And then we would say, well, what, what, what about that? And they would say, leave them be. Let them rest. The Sand Creek Massacre was so painful for the Cheyennes and Arapahoes that even now, more than 150 years later, it's still too much for many elders to confront the memory. But for Fred, confronting this part of their history is hard but necessary. When we were talking about this, Fred told me about this time a few years ago when some white people were trying to get him involved in a Sand Creek commemoration they were planning. And when I went to ask my mother, she said, no, leave them be, let them rest. You know, don't disturb them. They've suffered enough. It's what she told me. So I didn't, I never became part of it until, again, then it came up again. And uh, the only way they got me to do it was they told me, that the Rappos were being left out and the story of the Rappos wasn't been told. So then I said, okay, I'll do it. 
So what? About, let me, uh, Margaret Cole, the, the author of this um, this biography that I read. Uh, yes. I guess I just want to I get want to get your perspective on on her work. I mean, to my understanding, she's a white white person, and right. she spent all this time researching and writing up this book. What is that? What is that like to have uh, an outsider, you know, come in and, and tell this story? Well, as as long as they're telling the truth, then then history should be told. You know, we, we do a lot of things. You know you know, together or, you know, we do a lot of things, you know, in the, in the white man world so they can see it, but it's to educate them on how we are, who we are. You remember that during this time that they didn't think that we were humans, we were savages. And there's written stories about how when they, when somebody seen an Indian lose a loved one or something they seen that that hurt and and the white people were writing like they really do have feelings you know or they really do have you know love and stuff like so they didn't think we were humans so that was a hard time of life growing up then so what what i like to do is i like to to make sure that the history is told correctly so that's why I'm always willing to talk and show and, and, and you know, do things because I want the truth to be known. We, we were humans. We had feelings. We were, you know, so that's what I always do. I want, I want people to know the truth. idea that well let's see let me back up here there was an author who wrote a biography of George Bent George Bent the half Cheyenne survivor of Sand Creek we heard from earlier in his later years he carried on a correspondence with a white historian named George Hyde Hyde would send him letters with a series of questions about Bent's life, Bent's role in the wars on the plains, and what it was like living with the Cheyennes and Arapahoes at that time. Hyde later collected Bent's responses and published them as a sort of biography. I read that thing carefully, you know, from word to word, poring over each word, and all all about the Sand Creek Massacre, but nothing about left hand in there. And it hit me that maybe in the original manuscript, the author had put something about left hand at Sand Creek. So I started looking for the manuscript. Turned out the manuscript had been placed at the Denver Public Library in the Western History Department. So I went down there and got the manuscript, and I'm reading through it, and sadly, it's the same as the book. But as I'm leafing through the pages, here are these letters, original letters written by George Bent. 
and sent to the author. And they were just stuck in the pages of the manuscript. Colony, Oklahoma, March 14th. Dear Sir, I will give you the names of the principal chiefs killed at Sand Creek. White Antelope, Standing Water, One Eye, War Bonnet, Spotted Cow, Two Thighs, Bear Man, Yellow Shield, Yellow Wolf, who was very old. These were Cheyennes. There was one Arapaho chief killed, left hand. Respectfully, George Bent. And in fact, when I found the letters, I felt, I felt as if a member of my own family, I had just heard that a member of my own family had died. Up until that point, I think I was hoping that he had survived and he had gone on and he had taken his rightful place as the leader of the Arapaho people in Oklahoma. I think there was always that little hope I had going, you know, and I thought, no, that wasn't true. And I remember sitting there in the library and just feeling horrible, just horrible. It was so unnecessary. It, 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 the history could have been different. Things could have been different out here. You know, I mean, Left Hand at one point, they were having the first election out here. And Left Hand went and tried to vote. <laughs> and they wouldn't let him vote. He went to the polling place and they wouldn't let him vote because they said he'd, he didn't own any land. I thought about that a lot when I was writing the book. What had happened? What would have happened if they had been able to have an area that they could have lived on? And if they could have, if these two different cultures could have worked together, what kind of a society might we have had, you know? How much richer would it have been? Had they been brought in to this new society that was developing on the plains? Had they been part of it? Chief Left Hand was mortally wounded at Sand Creek, but he didn't die there. Along with the other survivors of the massacre, he crawled across the plains of what is now eastern Colorado to a Sioux camp, where he slowly succumbed to his injuries a few days later. While I was doing the book, um, my, my husband and I and our kids, we went to every place that's in this book. So every place that I write about, we visited. I thought it was important to see, you know, what the place was like and just get the feel of it, you know. And so my poor kids, I mean, their friends were going to Disneyland and all, they're going out on the plains, you know. So, but I didn't get to the place where the Sioux camp had been near Cheyenne Wells, uh, where Left Hand died. After the book came out, and it was a number of years later, we took off, my husband and I, for Cheyenne Wells, and I had a lot of information from the from the research that I had done as to where exactly this camp was located. And we drove as far as we could drive, and then we had to get out and walk, and we walked. But what the maps did not tell us was that what it was was a bluff up above these two stream beds. And the bluff is where the camp was. So we get to the area, and we get up to the top of the bluff, and it's a field of wildflowers. Every color imaginable. You just, it was incredibly beautiful. It was extraordinary. 
After all this, I still think about land acknowledgements. But when I think about them now, I think about the Cherry Creek near my house. It's not like downtown where it's lined by those concrete walls. In this part of the city, about two-thirds of the way to the reservoir, the land parcel around the creek is wide, and a dense thicket of long grass grows up around the trunks of the cottonwoods. I never noticed before moving here that there are these little desire paths winding through that underbrush. There's one that goes over a fallen log, another out to a storm drain you can peek into. My favorite one goes out to this patch of boulders right in the middle of the creek. It's a perfect spot to sit in the early morning and enjoy the sound of running water before rush hour traffic drowns everything else out. And as the sun rises, you can look downstream and see by the gray light of the winter dawn what this place was like before there was any such thing as Colorado.